Hi listeners, welcome back to Our Right Stories, a podcast created and developed by the Just Right Scotland team with your host, Natalia. To start off our second season, we have a special three-part episode series that looks into the Human Rights Bill in Scotland. This long-awaited bill is now in its consultation process. In this three-parter, we are going to explain what a consultation phase is, what is and isn't in the Human Rights Bill, and how those will impact our rights and the following steps that happen after this phase. We are focusing on this topic as part of a national campaign which aims to raise awareness about hashtag all our rights in Scotland and why access to justice is a fundamental aspect of this new bill. We also provide other organizations involved in this consultation process with information, useful and detailed analysis about these proposals, and how this represents an opportunity to build a better future for all in Scotland, together. So let's welcome back our guest speaker, Barbara Bolton, our legal director and partner at Just Right Scotland. Barbara will walk us through some of the apparent gaps that have been presented in the consultation phase. Um, so yeah, so I guess let's dive in. Okay, let's <laughs> do it. <laughs> um, so can you tell us a little bit about what is contained in the consultation? So I think I mentioned before the National Task Force, um, which came out with 30 recommendations in March 2021. And so just after that, the Scottish government confirmed that it accepted all 30 of those recommendations. And it's also confirmed a number of times that it will take those recommendations as far as it possibly can within the limits of devolution. And now, again, that is really positive. And we're going to hold them to that. <laughs> and in the consultation, positively, they proceed with that to a large extent in relation to economic, social, cultural and environmental rights. They confirm that those rights are to be incorporated into national law and that they will come with a duty on all public authorities and anyone else who is delivering public services, including private entities, they will have to comply with those rights. So those rights will become actually enforceable. There's a lot in the consultation around developing a human rights culture. And that's all really positive. That needs to happen. There needs to be measures for um, ensuring that public authorities and everyone working in them really understands human rights. All the human rights. So there's work still to be done on the civil and political rights that are already incorporated through the Human Rights Act. I think it's generally acknowledged now that that wasn't achieved at the time as well as it should have been. The implementation phase wasn't done as well as it should have been. So we can learn from that and we can ensure that that's done better this time. There also needs to be a whole range of measures to ensure that rights are being fulfilled at the time to avoid breach. And there needs to be improvement in really quick, accessible, free mechanisms so that people can get a resolution to a breach right there and then without wasting time and energy and having to really fight for it. There needs to be a real change in culture to achieve that. But there also needs to be, even even if all of that is done really well and to the maximum extent possible, we're still going to need to be able to go to court because 
you always need to have that backdrop of if you don't do it, we will have to go to court and make you do it. And that's particularly the case where budgets are under real pressure and local government's under real pressure and people in local government are under real pressure and social workers are under real pressure and everyone's just struggling to do everything they need to do. We need to ensure that even in those those difficult circumstances, human rights are at the top and are an absolute requirement and can't be neglected in favour of something else because the budget is tight. So it's really important that there is that requirement that they comply. If we don't have that, we don't have the ability to make them comply, essentially. So it's really positive that the consultation says there will be a duty to comply. It also says that they'll be given a period of time to get used to these rights and get ready for that. So it says initially, we won't have a duty to comply. We'll just have what's being called a procedural duty. And they haven't really made clear what they're saying that is, which comes back to what we said earlier about consultations. They have a duty to be clear enough about what they're proposing and why they're proposing it so that people responding can really engage. We can't really engage with that because they haven't said what it is. However, we know that a procedural duty is something like the duty to give due regard to something. We already have an example of a procedural duty in the public sector equality duty, but we know from experience and we know from case law that that is not enforceable in the same way. It doesn't get you the same result. You can't make them comply through that duty. So what they've said is that for an initial period, there will be that procedural duty only. And the idea there is that it gets public authorities to really start to think about these rights, to start to embed them into its practices um, and think through all the ways in which those rights are going to apply to their work or their services they provide and start to make those changes to to comply so that when the compliance duty comes in they've already done a lot of that work and they're ready. However what the Scottish Government consultation doesn't do is tell us how long they're proposing that be for and that's really important because it can't be for too long. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, You know we can appreciate that a window makes sense because this is a significant change and there does need to be a period of time for that proper uh, embedding, understanding and change to be made and again drawing from from our experience of the Human Rights Act where we know that wasn't done adequately and we're still dealing with that now. There really needs to be sufficient time but there needs to be a process that will be applied during that time to make sure it actually happens and in all of that there's not enough detail in the consultation. Um, you know, by now, if we're getting a bill by June, we should know what they're proposing. Is it one year? Is it two? It can't be much more than that, I would hope. 
and what are you going to do with that one or two years? What is the implementation plan? Where is that? Because now we're only a few months away from a bill. We don't have very long for them to come out with more developed proposals. However, on the whole, or in terms of the, the sort of top level commitments, they're following through on economic, social, cultural and environmental rights. Where there has been significant change is in relation to all of the other treaties. The task force recommended and the Scottish government accepted that they would also incorporate specific rights for disabled people, specific rights for black and ethnic minority communities and specific rights for women. And there are treaties or international contracts for all of those that the UK has signed up to, but again, has never incorporated international law. They committed to incorporating them, and so the expectation was, the reasonable expectation was, that they would propose to incorporate all of these rights in the same way to the extent they're able to under the limits of devolution. But instead, what they're now saying is those other three treaties, they're calling them the equality treaties, as if all they do is say you must not discriminate against these groups in relation to civil and, the civil and political rights and the economic, social and cultural rights that are set out in these other treaties. But that's not all these these treaties do. Each of those treaties has standalone substantive rights for those particular groups that are targeted to the needs of those particular groups. And in our view, instead of doing the work required to tease out that every element of those treaties, every element of those rights that we could get into Scottish law without causing any difficulties with devolution or the Scotland Act, which created devolution, they've just said they're the equality treaties and devolution is complex, there are limits, we can't encroach into equality law because the Equality Act is reserved, equal opportunities as a policy area is reserved, it's very complex, we want to create an accessible piece of legislation and so on balance, the best thing to do is not incorporate those rights with a duty to comply. We think they, we should just create a procedural duty. So I mentioned earlier the interim procedural duty for economic, social, cultural, environmental rights. They're saying that's all there will ever be for these other rights, for these other treaties. So again, that procedural duty, whatever it is, let's say it's due regard or it's taken into account, it has to be something like that. That will never give us enforceable rights. We'll never be able to go to court and say that they have breached that right and must take steps to fulfil that right. That can never happen. At best, we would be able to go to court and say they've failed to demonstrate that they gave due regard to these things. And it, and that can work. There are very rare cases where that works. And there was that, that same case I mentioned earlier from, from last year from the Court of Session said that for the Scottish Borders Council had made a decision to close a care centre, um, which is part of the fallout of the pandemic and the fact that it had been closed 
in the interim during the pandemic but then they decided to close it permanently and they were challenged for failure to give due regard to the needs of the people who needed to have access to that centre and it was a very rare decision where the court said that they hadn't shown that they'd applied due regard with the rigour that's required. They had completed what's called an equality impact assessment where you're supposed to take into account all of the, the impacts that this proposal would have on different types of people. Um, you should really hear from those people and they had done a general one for the general proposal to close some centres but they hadn't done one for this specific centre and they'd failed in some other ways and so the court said their decision was unlawful and they struck it out but it leaves you in a bit of an odd situation because the centre was already closed and what's the rem- what's the actual remedy in practice and it's really unclear um if if it was a situation where the local authority remained determined to go through with whatever it was in response to that they could just retake the decision they could just retake the decision and this time do the impact assessment and have the paperwork to show they've done it um and unless you get a judge who's going to really assess that which this judge did more than previous judges have done um it's probably going to be enough you know probably going to be able to satisfy that test and say look we did give due regard um but it's up to us how much weight we give these impacts so we we completed the impact assessment we acknowledged that it would have an impact on for example disabled people but we took into account all the other considerations we're permitted to take into account such as budget and in our decision we still need to close the court can't interfere with that because it's a process duty and if they followed the process they've fulfilled that duty if it's a duty to comply then they have to uphold the actual right in terms of the outcome so if we only have a, a process duty for these rights, that doesn't get us very far. Now, if if the limits of devolution meant that's all the Scottish Parliament could do, then fair enough. You know, that if that's as far as we could go, then incorporation could only take us so far. Um, and we would continue to... I'm sure civil, across civil society would continue to campaign for improved Scottish law in all of the different areas. And that can happen whether we have incorporation or not. But if devolution allows them to go further than that, they committed to go as far as they possibly could within the confines of devolution. And incorporation of these human rights as part of a framework legislation a framework law could have real benefits for all of these groups and could could add significantly to what we already have and so it is in our view definitely worth the Scottish government doing that detailed assessment 
of each of the rights in these treaties and can we incorporate and it's difficult again to really engage properly with this proposal because they really haven't given their reasons they haven't set out their reasons for why they are saying on balance this is all we can do and without that it's very difficult to kind of reply to their question which is essentially do you agree well that depends so all we've been able to do is our own assessment of what we think might be possible under devolution and you know as a charity and with lots of constraints on our time we can only really go so far with that um but our analysis suggests they could go further um that it seems to us pretty clear that they could incorporate a number of standalone substantive rights for disabled people without coming into conflict with what I mentioned earlier, the Equal Opportunities Reservation. Because they're already allowed to do things that don't go any further than the Equality Act or don't come into conflict with the Equality Act. The Equality Act allows positive measures for disabled people. It's not unlawful discrimination to give disabled people the support they need that's particular to them because of their disabilities. That's not unlawful discrimination under the Equality Act. So why would bringing into Scots law the right to independent living, for example, let's say the right to independent living gives disabled people um, certain actual concrete rights in relation to social care or in relation to the state having to go as, as far as it can to support them to live at home, to live where they want to live, um, to have choice. On paper, the Scottish government already says that's what it wants to give disabled people. But that's in guidance and in non-binding documents. Our actual law on that goes back to the 1960s, is severely out of date, is seriously inadequate and we know from our case law that we just don't have a clear actual enforceable right for disabled people to get social care to be supported to be to live where they want um, when that's reasonably possible and so we know that people are being put into unsuitable care homes when they could be living at home with their family um, and we can't enforce a clear right to social care because Scottish law doesn't have one and that's just one example there's a number of rights in the treaty for disabled people that we believe could be brought into Scots law without creating any issues in relation to devolution um, because it just doesn't come into conflict with the Equality Act and unless we hear from Scottish government explaining why that's wrong that will be our position in the consultation response, which is to be in by the 5th of October. Um, but then in relation to the other treaties, so for, the, for women's rights, for the rights of black and ethnic minority communities, the Equality Act also allows positive action. 
Um, and it makes this distinction between unlawful positive discrimination and lawful positive action. And it is difficult and confusing. <laughs> and it is also a really underdeveloped area of law. And there are a lot of areas in the Equality Act that are underdeveloped and underused and that have kind of sat on the statute book since 2010 without really being developed well through case law. And this comes back to another reason why we always need to be able to go to court to test law and to get it clarified and uh, see how it applies in particular situations. But there's a lot of the Equality Act that really just hasn't happened for. And the largely the focus for the Equality Act has been on employment. Other areas are seriously neglected. So this section in the Equality Act that says you can take positive action and that that is lawful and it is not unlawful positive discrimination has not really been used or clarified well and is probably not very well known but it's there and there is some guidance there's statutory guidance and there's guidance from the Equality and Human Rights Commission and there's quite a lot of case law in the employment context that you can kind of draw from to get those general principles and so we know that um as long as there's an assessment and that there's evidence that a group is disadvantaged because of that characteristic, because they're a woman, because they're black, or or maybe both, um, the government can take proportionate positive measures to address that. And so again, we believe that gives the Scottish Government the ability to bring in some of these rights from those treaties that would give really important additional legal provision for those groups and clarify that certain types of positive action can be taken to tackle prejudice and to promote awareness and understanding and address stigma and 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 that might be somewhat undervalued I suppose um, but could be incredibly important so there's a lot of work that we think hasn't yet been done that should should be done and that the Scottish government committed itself to doing and that somehow it's going to have to find the time to do between now and its promise to bring this bill in in June. So it will need to act pretty quickly <laughs> to achieve that, but we we will be pressing it to do that work because we think it's important. And going back to what you said, this is an important opportunity, an important moment, and it would be really disappointing if they didn't take the opportunity to go as far as they can yeah to be fair like listening okay so 
<laughs> like I'm learning and I'm also like overwhelmed. I'm like, I can't even I know imagine. <laughs> I can't even imagine what you are going through. Um, so it sounds a few things would be like, one, they didn't fully define their terms and what they mean by certain things um, within the consultation. They didn't give enough um, background about why they took that approach versus another one. Um, but then it also sounds like while they can't make, um, like, I mean, just like what you said there is making the distinction based on evidence. And I'm almost curious to ask, like, well, do they even know how they would take that evidence or how they would collect that data or, or how that would be structured to even make, you know, the kind of decision to add that into the consultation, add this into the bill. And I'm kind of curious, like on the back end, like this just sounds like a huge bill. And I'm, I'm almost kind of curious if, if, maybe their time scale for having it before next year maybe it was kind of I don't know a far reached considering like how much work maybe they do need to do to actually implement all these different treaties in a proper way and and really give it the thought that it needs to or maybe they could have done I don't know more before giving it to you know the consultation and having civil societies kind of go in there and look at everything and so what do you yeah I think that's that's totally valid um, I'm sure the Scottish government have its own story about why we are where we are, but from outside perspective, uh, from a rights holder's perspective, you know they've had since March 2021 to develop proposals based on their acceptance of those 30 recommendations, and well, frankly, the consultation suggests they've not done that in many areas. Um, for whatever reason and that's really disappointing because they set the initial time frame they said we're going to bring a bill in this parliamentary term Um, they've decided that means that they needed to consult this summer although they have been advised I believe a number of times that consultation over the summer is far from ideal um, particularly for organisations who who then in turn consult with their members and those they represent. Um, but they've decided that timetable and they've decided a bill before June 2024. And equally, for whatever reason, they haven't done the work in those two years. And that's why we are where we are. And that's why, to a large extent, the consultation, when I first read it, it felt like we're just being asked the same questions we've been asked before because they're really broad questions, really broad proposals. Um, And they were given extensive evidence during the task force process. And the task force process involved a number of sub subgroups and sub panels and boards. And they had reams of evidence from people with lived experience to tell them, what it's like at at their end, which is the you know what what this is all about, um, including in relation to access to justice, which is a huge element of this, such a significant part of this, um, and rights holders, individuals have said time and time again that the very worst outcome would be rights on paper that you actually can't enforce in reality um, ambition without substance. Mm. And 
one of the areas in the consultation that's particularly weak is access to justice. And the Scottish Government has acknowledged that, which is fine, but it doesn't change the fact that we really don't have proposals that would address the numerous barriers to accessing justice that we know already exist in our system. And that's one of the areas where, in particular, I think now that we know the time frame we're in, there's absolutely no way this bill is going to contain detailed provisions in relation to access to justice that will address in any significant way the barriers to access to justice that isn't going to happen and that's why one of the things we'll be pushing for that isn't in the consultation and I'm not sure why is the right to an effective remedy to be on the face of the bill to be an actual substantive right along with all the other rights with a duty to comply. That's one of the rights that was omitted from the Human Rights Act. It appears in the European Convention of Human Rights. It's a really important right and for whatever reason was not included in the Human Rights Act. But again, we have a chance here to do better than that. And we are strongly of the view as a legal charity that that, that the bread and butter is enforcement of rights where it's necessary, that there has to be the substantive right to an effective remedy in this bill, which would mean that people would have that right in national law that where any of the other rights in the bill were breached, that they also had the right to an effective remedy. And what that requires is that they have accessible, affordable and timely and effective remedies. Um... What that means in... Sorry. Sorry, I was going to ask, what is a remedy? A remedy is a way of addressing a breach of rights and it can take lots of different forms. And there should be a range of possibilities and they should be able to select the form that fits best and provides the person with the best outcome. So it could be restitution to put the person back in the position they would have been in had the breach not happened could be compensation if it's not possible to return them to where they would have been had the breach not happened or if it's better to give them money to to take steps to try and um, address the negative impact it could be an apology which we hear from people is very important. It could be a declaration that your rights have been breached, which again for people is really important. Um, It could be, and this is especially important for economic, social, cultural, environmental rights, could be a structural remedy, which is where you look at the overall situation, not just the individual's experience and situation, but what is the broader situation they're in. Um, So I don't know if there's a situation in in one block of flats, in one block of social housing, and that person could take a claim and, and could get some sort of remedy, but actually it's affecting everyone. 
in that mm. building or it's affecting that whole community or and so you, if you have a structural remedy you can require measures to be taken that address the whole situation that's one of the things scotland doesn't currently have um, and it's a significant gap and that was discussed in the task force and there was a recommendation that the Scottish Government look in more detail at the possibility of introducing a structural remedy. They haven't done that, and there are no proposals on that, and that's disappointing. Um, And that's just one example. There's a whole load of of recommendations by the task force that were accepted and that just haven't been developed. Uh, Do the limits of devolution make it difficult to incorporate that right? So in general, I don't think so because um, Scotland has a completely separate legal system and always has. And that was retained when Scotland formed the union with England and Wales in 1707. And it was retained or it wasn't affected by devolution because there are the uh, civil justice is not reserved. Anything not specifically reserved in the Scotland Act is devolved. Um, so generally, Scotland has complete control over civil remedies and the civil justice process and the administrative justice process. There are some exceptions to that, but they are exceptions. So the Human Rights Act says you must raise a claim within a year or demonstrate is equitable for it to be allowed after that. And it also says you must be a victim, and there's a definition of victim. So that is reserved, that's built into devolution, and we can't change that. Similarly, in the Equality Act, it says you must bring a claim within six months, and we can't change that. However, aside from those exceptions, there may be others, um... Scotland controls its own civil justice system. And so in relation to these incorporated rights, we should, you know, if we have, if it's within devolved competence to incorporate the rights, it should be within devolved competence to apply a requirement for an effective remedy for breach of those rights. So I... There was no specific recommendation in the task force report for this right to be on the face of the bill, but I'm not sure why not. It's possible that because there were a set of recommendations for the government to do specific work, including that it look at what needed to be changed to ensure that we had accessible, affordable, timely, effective remedies for all these rights, that it didn't think it needed that because it thought the Scottish government would do that work and that we would actually be now bringing in reforms that would achieve that. Whether or not that was you know, overly optimistic, um, we know that that work hasn't been done, and those two years were effectively lost in relation to that. And so we are where we are. And if we are moving towards a bill by June, there is, and as I say, there's just no way we're now we're now getting those reforms in time. We may get some things, but the proposals in the consultation are so limited in this. They basically ignore the court system and the tribunal system. And they focus only on 
those alternatives to court. And as I say, those alternatives to court are really important. It's, it's really important people have free and immediate access to a way of getting a solution fast and without burden and without time and uh, all the resources that have to go into a court case. But they also have to have the backdrop of being able to go to court. And right now we have a system that is completely disjointed. There are so many different avenues. Um, The avenues, the different places you can go are not joined up. The time limits are different. Um, A clock will continue to run against you in court while you're trying to sort it out in another way. Um, You only have three months to raise a judicial review from the moment of the breach. Three months. (laughs) I mean, most people in in many situations won't even know they have a right Mm -hmm. within that time. Um, And the way that that time limit has has been interpreted... The courts have said, even if you don't know the decision was made, the time runs against you. So if if a government department drafts a letter telling you it's made a decision or the decision is made and they write it down, the time starts from then, even if you don't receive that letter for three weeks or three months. So the time could have run out by the time you know the decision's been made. Now that cannot be right but that is currently our law. Thanks to Barbara for explaining what is currently being consulted on and how essential it is for the Scottish government to address these gaps in the bill. Join us next time as we welcome another special guest to talk about this consultation through a policy lens, what Just Right Scotland is doing in response, and what happens after the feedback is submitted on October 5th. Like always, listeners, don't forget to like, comment, share, and subscribe to this podcast. Don't forget you can always listen back to Season 1 on our Podbean website, any podcast streaming services, and also make sure to follow our social media pages. And we'll catch you next time.